Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Aisha Akhtar will join us to discuss our symphony with animals. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Show. Well, animals make up a deep and important part of many people's lives, and in her new book, Our Symphony with Animals on Health, Empathy, and Our Shared Desires, Dr. Aisha Akhtar explores this issue for a general audience. Dr. Akhtar is a double board certified in both neurology and preventative medicine and has a master's degree in public health. She's currently the deputy director of the Army's Traumatic Brain Injury Program and is also a fellow of the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics and is a consultant editor for the Journal of Animal Ethics. Again, her new book is entitled Our Symphony with Animals on Health, Empathy, and Our Shared Destinies. And Dr. Akhtar, very pleased to have you today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Very uh, heartfelt book that you've written here on Symphony with Animals. Uh, I'm curious why you decided to write this book. I'm, as you mentioned, I'm a neurologist, and I know how animals affect my well-being. I know from personal history, and I, I've loved animals. I've had animals throughout much of, most of my life, and I know how they affect my well-being. But in medicine, it's not really a topic we discuss much. If we ever do, it's about maybe cats or dogs, and it's very limited. And you know. In 1946, the World Health Organization had defined health as more than just the absence of disease, but a, it's a complete, a state of complete uh, physical, mental, and social well-being. In other words, the WHO recognized that everything in our lives can impact our health. So that was back in the 40s, and although medicine acknowledges that and, and follows that idea, it hasn't really looked at one of the great influences in our life since the beginning of our species, which is our relationships with animals. And I thought that by not looking at our relationships with animals and how that affects our well-being as individuals and as society, then medicine was missing a very vital component of our health. And I wanted to change that. Why is it that you think uh, this has been overlooked? I think in some ways it is starting to change. Um, you know, it's really changing mostly when people are thinking of like animal therapy um, for help, uh, canines, for example, example helping people with PTSD and and those kinds of issues. And and just are, but but it's very limited to our companion animals. And uh, I think it, the, it, you know when I talk to people, researchers who are even studying these issues, the companion animals and their effect on our health. It was an uphill battle for them. Um, they weren't taken seriously by medicine. And, um, you know, I think it was considered something that was for veterinarians. And there's a bit of a snobism in medicine. So it was considered, uh, you know, something that the veterinarians should be taking care of, not the, the, med- the human health people. So um, that part, that idea and that, that, you know, that snobism is starting to change, but only when it comes to our companion animals, really mostly dogs, and then to somewhat, some degree, cats. 
But I wanted to look beyond that. I really wanted to look at the animals that we bring into our homes and the animals that we don't, the animals whose lives we affect and in turn whose lives affect us even if we're not aware of it. So I'm looking at these animals who are often hidden from our view as well. A good portion of your book talks about developing empathy with all animals. What do you mean in, in terms of how, how to implement this in our lives? Well, I think actually um, from what I've uh, uh, studied, it, I think that the human species has an inherent empathy for all other species. And it's quite, it's quite remarkable, actually, the strength of our empathy. I mean, when you think about it, there's no other animal species out there that routinely goes out and brings other animals into their homes, right? Adopt other animals as part of their family. We hear anecdotes, but no one else, no other species does it routinely like humans. We seek animals. We, if we, we bring them into our homes, or we go to safaris in, in Kenya to, to watch the, the elephants and giraffes, or we go on wildlife tours. Um, you know, we, we truly do feel this innate desire to connect with other species. So that empathy is there. What I have found, though, is that in many cases, to do the things that we do to many species, though, we suppress our empathy in order to feel comfortable. And I'm talking about the animals that... Um, we systematically cause a, a lot of cruelty to. So the animals in factory farms, the animals in laboratories, fur farms, puppy mills, and so on. And research is really suggesting that we really do work hard, believe it or not, subconsciously to suppress our innate empathy in order to feel comfortable with doing these things. But research is also starting to show that the cruelty that we inflict on others is actually having an impact on us and it, us in a way that may not be so obvious. So violence inflicted on other animals is seeping into our civilization as well. So is it in a way similar to the lack of empathy that sometimes arises among humans? Absolutely. And one of the things about empathy, what research has shown, is that we are more empathetic to those we are familiar with, who are near us, and who are like us. So, you know, Caucasians may be more empathetic toward Caucasians who are their brothers and sisters or their neighbors or, you know, and, and who might be more like them in attitude about many things and what they like, their hobbies. Um, same thing with, uh, you know, Pakistanis, right? My, my family's from Pakistan, and I know that um, there's a, you know, I su suspect that many Pakistanis are going to have a greater empathy toward other Pakistanis. We that's That's something that is very strong. We feel that connection most strongly to those we know. And that includes dogs and cats. And that's why we have such a strong empathy for dogs. And now it's definitely increasing with cats as well, because three-fourths of American families have dogs and cats in, as part of their household. So we know these dogs and cats. We're familiar with them. We love them. So our greatest empathy is for these animals, not because of any anything that's necessarily unique to these animals, but because we are familiar with them. So with other animals, and this, you, you can say the same thing with, with uh, empathy toward other species, the less we are familiar with them, the less we feel empathy toward them. It is a very trying issue, especially in today's society where it seems like uh, empathy has gone out the window. Do you think engaging more with the animals, again, helps? It does. It definitely does. It's not always the case. We, there are you know, stories where we hear people being more empathetic towards other animals than towards other humans. So there's always going to be exceptions. But in general, empathy for animals is the inevitable 
inevitable extension of our empathy for each other. So there was a study that looked at people's empathy for uh, immigrants in, into the U.S. And they um, basically, they had them read stories about what they wanted to know was how their attitude towards animals affected their empathy towards immigrants. And so when they read, had the uh, study participants read stories in which the animals were um, described as being less similar to us and, and you know, um, they were just described as being more other, then the empathy that those participants had towards immigrants was lessened. On the other hand, when they read stories in which, which showcased the similarities between humans and other animals, the empathy that the participants had for the immigrants increased. So it's a really interesting thing. It's just I think it's, it would make sense that the more we practice empathy towards anyone, the more it grows towards everyone. And you have a number of, of very interesting stories in which you look at how our, our empathy with animals has taken root or, or hasn't taken root. If, if I can say part of the story, part of the reason why I wanted to write this book was because of my own personal in, um, story as well. Um, when I was uh, uh, nine years old, I was being sexually abused by an uncle. And at the time, my grandparents living next door had adopted a dog named Sylvester. And I had never known an animal before in my life, but Sylvester and I just fell absolutely in love with each other. We, I saw him every day. He was truly my best friend. And over the course uh, during this first year with Sylvester, unfortunately, I learned and I came upon Sylvester was being abused by another uncle. He was being thrown against walls, kicked and punched in order to train him to housebreak him. And it was, it was, you know, it was heartbreaking for me. It was incredibly heartbreaking for me. And I kept silent for a long time. You know, I was nine years old. But over time, something happened at some subconscious level. I must have realized that his abuse was not so different from mine in many ways and um, that all abuse hides behind silence. And my empathy and love for Sylvester gave me the courage to speak out and end his abuse. And then that led me to have the courage to speak out and end my abuse. And so that, that was my backstory. And so, you know, I really wanted to explore now, to, you know, today, what does empathy mean for animals? How do we have it? Why do we have it? And what happens when we, um, you know, experience empathy for animals? And what happens when we suppress empathy for animals? And then, as you mentioned, I went around gathering stories from people who had some very profound relationships with animals that impacted their lives. And that included a serial killer who unfortunately killed a lot of animals before he ended up killing also and murdering and raping eight women. Um, I, I did a ride along with the New York Police Department and how they investigate animal abuse and how uh, empathy in New York is changing even among the, the police department. Um, um, I met a uh, Marine veteran uh, suffering from PTSD, a uh, social worker who um, started the first successful animal therapy program in a prison. This was in 1970s, and it occurred in the most notorious penal institution in American history. And, you know, there, there are just so many stories like that. And as you mentioned, I also toured some factory farms, which were heartbreaking for me personally. 
I mean, they're they're real heartbreaking. And what take out of it is it is it that even in the face of lack of empathy, we can regain our shared empathy with uh, with animals and maybe ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's that's one of the endings. I won't I won't uh, say what it is, but there's a redemption story at the very ending um, as well. And it, it, it's to show showcase how I really do believe that we we can learn to re-engage with our empathy for those species that we might not have at the moment. And I found this even with um, the farmer, the, the, the farmer and his family the, that had the chicken factory farm. What was so surprising is that as they had such a duality of how they thought about what they were doing. On one hand, they were, you know, justifying and, and they really thought it, it was normal keeping these chickens in these miserable conditions in these cages where they can barely move. And yet on that, another hand, they they were so distraught over the idea of killing these chickens. They were so distraught that one time when they didn't have to kill the chickens, they went out to dinner to celebrate. So there was this real duality, and I find that a lot with a lot of people. And even with the the serial killer, Keith Jefferson, there were moments of profound empathy that were really surprising for me. Um, But, you know, over the course of his life, he learned to suppress that. And what these stories suggest to me is that even when we do cause cruelty to animals. We're working hard to suppress our empathy in order to do that. And that suggests that our empathy is so strong, we have to work hard to suppress it. So that actually gives me hope, as odd as that may sound. So I think for a lot of people, I think, first of all, the book might be a validation for them, for people who care about their companion animals, truly care about the companion animals and love them so much that some people might still feel a little stigma and be a little embarrassed to admit how much they care about their dogs and cats. So I think the book will will validate those feelings for those people as well. But um, I'm, I'm hoping just by, you know, the book is mostly told through stories, the social medicine Uh, I mean, uh, social history and science and medicine woven in. And I'm really hoping that it's with these stories that people will start to see some uh, reflection of uh, reflection in their own lives from from reading about the stories of other people. And that might help to at least get us to start thinking about how we think about all animals as a whole. We were just talking with Dr. Aisha Akhtar. She's the author of the new book, Our Symphony with Animals on Health empathy, and our shared destinies. And Dr. Akhtar, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you so much for having me, Charles. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. Oh, no.